Blog Talk Radio. Sanders 
officially won the New Hampshire primary. He won by about two percentage points, roughly 4,000 or so, maybe 4,500 votes. Um, it's a win. It counts as a win. Um, unfortunately, though, you know, the margin of victory was bigger in Iowa, but they're still trying to, like, take that victory from him and give Mayor Pete the state delegate-elects, which determines the victor. Um, but, you know, they're doing a re-canvas, so they're basically recounting. And uh, if you actually fix all of the outstanding issues, Bernie Sanders wins in Iowa as well. There are specific mistakes that people can point to and say, hey, delegate here, delegate there, you totally missed this precinct and it went to Bernie. You know, if you fix everything, Bernie Sanders wins Iowa in ev by every conceivable, conceivable metric, and Bernie Sanders wins New Hampshire, so he's two for two. Now, what you're about to see here is a clip from MSNBC. Bernie Sanders got an unlikely assist, and the assist is from the media, which hates him. Take a look. He can't run away with it. Look, last time, four years ago, sitting right here, uh, Bernie Sanders won 60% of the vote. So the story of the Sanders campaign so far this year is how much ground he's lost from four years ago. He's lost half of his support in New Hampshire. He's lost half of his support nationwide. What about over here? Who did you vote for? I voted for Bernie. Um, although there are a number of candidates that I really like, and so I felt like I, I when I finished voting, I was still undecided, um, including Elizabeth, including Michael Bennett, for that matter. Now, that's sort of a paradox, to, to decide and then feel undecided. <laughs> so you're a complex person. Well, <laughs> yes, but I want to say the reason I went for Bernie is um, because of MSNBC. And there's... Go on. <laughs> to say that he's lost 50% of his vote um, from the last time when there were two candidates. Now there are multiple wonderful candidates who would be great presidents and people that we can, I think, that we can unify and get behind. But the, the, the kind of the stop Bernie cynicism that I heard from a number of people, I watch MSNBC constantly, so I heard that from a number of commentators. And so that should, it made me angry enough. I said, okay, Bernie's got my vote. So the media relentlessly piling on against Bernie Sanders actually backfired, and it ended up helping Bernie Sanders, at least in this case with this one woman. But I think you can uh, replicate that many times over. Um, I, think, I think it's a fair bet to say roughly the same amount of people that they turned off to Bernie Sanders, they turned on to Bernie Sanders. So some people look at the coverage and they go, that's ridiculous. Now I support the guy more. Other people might fall for the propaganda. But, you know, what this shows is it's transparent. It's transparent. Anybody who's paying attention goes, you know, that doesn't quite sound right. I mean, look at that argument that they're making right there. Oh, Bernie Sanders, you know, sure, he won New Hampshire, but... Last time he got 60% of the vote. This time he only got 26 or 27% of the vote. So obviously there was a giant collapse. Last time he was running against one, you know, deeply unpopular politician, namely Hillary Clinton. This time he was running against like 10 people 
of course you're going to get a, a, you know, a smaller percentage of the vote. Of course you're going to get fewer votes. And what they do is they bend over backwards to try to craft a narrative against Bernie. And it's really transparent, man. I mean, they hide all of the positive stuff about him, too. Like, for example, there's a giant increase in um, turnout among younger people. There was also an increase in turnout from 2008. So 2008, of course, is what they view as the benchmark standard because it's when, you know, uh, Barack Obama won. So they think like, oh, we'll know the Democrats are doing okay if it's at or exceeds 2008 levels. And um, what we had in this election was in New Hampshire, it did exceed 2008 levels. Uh, Now, that is a little more complicated. It depends on how exactly you calculate it. There are different ways to calculate it. Do you do it as a percentage of the population? Do you do it as a, you know, um, raw vote total? But by some metrics, he beat 2008 levels. And, of course, turnout among young people was up massively. So he won. I mean, listen, they're trying to say that, oh, my God, this was amazing for Klobuchar because she came in third place. And contrast that with how they're talking about the person who's in first. Chuck Todd said the other day, I have no idea why anybody would call Bernie the front runner." You don't? <laughs> you won the first two contests? He got the most votes in the first two contests, and you don't understand that? You know, his, the position he's sitting in in the upcoming states is by far and away better than anybody else right now. I got bad news for Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, who, you know, are the ones who are considered to have, that they're saying have momentum right now. They're about to hit a wall. Why? Because, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are lily white states, man. Now we're moving to states that have uh, large populations of people of color. And Bernie's doing fantastically well with people of color. And Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete have non-existent support among people of color. In California, up until like last week, Mayor Pete didn't even have a single office open. He was banking on a springboard effect from Iowa and New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, what's happened is even to the extent he got any bump at all, He's at 6% in the poll in, in California, way below, like three other candidates. Bernie's got a big lead there. So, but again, take a moment and, and reflect on how they're talking about this. The guy who came in first and the guy who came in first in Iowa and New Hampshire, they're trying to downplay it. And what are they doing? They're trying, oh my God, clobmentum. There's a debate now, is it clobmentum or clomentum? When you talk about, you know, Amy Klobuchar outperforming the polls and, Here's the good news, guys. This is very, very reminiscent of 2016 on the Republican side. It really is. Uh, Matt Taibbi wrote a wonderful article about this that I was reading last night. It's really incredible. Um, And he was laying out all the parallels. Because, again, you know, it happened in 2016. You You had the candidates picking apart, or excuse me, the hosts on TV picking apart the rest of the race and just kind of like excluding Trump. So Trump actually lost Iowa in 2016. Ted Cruz was the winner in Iowa. And Trump was up in the polls leading into Iowa. And I remember because I predicted that Ted Cruz would win Iowa um, because, uh, you know, sometimes Iowa throws curveballs at you. And um, what happened in New Hampshire was Trump won by a large margin but Kasich came in a surprise second place. And so the argument from the media was, oh, my God. Oh, my God, guys. Uh, Kasich, Kasich's the one. Look at this. He's got 
Kasich Mentum. Okay, they didn't say that. But still, they were trying to say that Kasich was the big winner of New Hampshire when Trump won. Um, in Iowa, they used Marco Rubio's third-place finish to say, uh, Rubio Mentum, here he comes, Marco Rubio. So think about it. In the race leading up to the Iowa caucus in 2016 on the GOP side, the talk nonstop, oh, my God, Jeb Bush, 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 he's a front runner, his last name is Bush, oh, my God, that's great, oh, my God, it's so wonderful. He got waxed, son. He got waxed in Iowa. So they were like, okay, we got to move on from him. Anyway, who's next? Marco Rubio, yeah, Marco Rubio. And then by New Hampshire, John Kasich, yes, John Kasich. Rubio gave a speech after Iowa when he came in third like he won. Does that sound familiar? That's what frickin' Pete has been doing, even though he's gotten fewer votes in both states. Um, and so there was a, there's been a scramble all along. And with Trump, it got to the point where they even were like, okay, fine, we'll take Cruz over Trump. And the media was trying to pump up Cruz, pump up Cruz. It didn't work. And you had basically the establishment candidates split their vote in a thousand ways and left a path for Donald Trump. That's exactly what's happening this time with Bernie. Now you have, uh, you know, all the other candidates, by the way, including Elizabeth Warren, who's now, they're all splitting the vote between themselves. Biden, who's low energy Jeb this time around, he's just getting absolutely obliterated. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, Elizabeth Warren, all of them are splitting the centrist vote. And Bernie's the last one standing. And so the parallels are absolutely amazing. But also the media coverage is is unbelievably similar and this is nominally the liberal network and man they hate bernie sanders to the point where even your average voter is like what are you doing you're making me like him more so much like 2016 when there was all the hair on fire coverage about donald trump now you know i'm a fan of covering donald trump aggressively but you have to use good arguments i try not to do the thing where in mainstream media they'll take like you know They'll take a tweet he wrote, and they'll act like when it's just like a joke tweet, like, oh, my God, this is, this is the end of, you know, the United States of America. Like when he tweets the thing where it shows like Trump 2020, 2024, 2028, so on and so forth, and it shows like him winning elections for like the next hundred years. And the media takes that as if like Trump is, hints that he will be a dictator. That's what he's doing. And it's like, what? Stop. You're so ridiculous and over the top. I like to cover Trump, you know, in a way where it's accurate and it's aggressive, but it's fair. They're like, fuck the fairness part. <laughs> We're just going to go after him in any way possible. And that's exactly what they're doing against Bernie. And um, I'm happy to see that, at least in some instances, it's backfiring and people see through it. So, um we really should be thanking the media because there is a chance it is a net benefit. I think worst case scenario, it's a wash. The same number of people they're turning off, they're also turning on to him. Um, but it's possible it's even a net benefit for him. And one of the things I've come to really appreciate about Bernie is um, the way he's been handling his detractors. Like the new thing is James Carville's been you know, trashing Bernie going all around mainstream media. And they asked Bernie about it. And Bernie says, oh, uh, James Carville, with all due respect, is a political hack. And he's saying things about me very, very similar to what he said about Barack Obama in 2008 when he was with the Clintons. And, like, his whole tone, it wasn't, it's not like me where I go over the top with it and I'm, like, aggressive. He handles all of his detractors like they're, you know, 
he's the dad and they're the toddler in the back seat throwing a tantrum on the road trip. And he's got this vibe to him like, uh, how about you uh, shut the fuck up? <laughs> and it's like calm, but it's also good. So this is, that's how he's handling it. And I think that's working. I think people look at that and they get that similar vibe. It's like, oh, that's why, you know, we call him America's dad, is that he's acting like America's dad. Like all the other noise is like, this is all noise. It's ridiculous. I'm going to get you health care. So uh, people see through it. The media is failing. The other candidates are failing. And now we have the momentum going forward, no matter what they tell you about Pete, no matter what they tell you about Klobuchar. Biden was his biggest competition moving forward, man. The polls all reflected it was a race between Bernie and Biden, Bernie and Biden. And Biden collapsed. What, do you get a fourth place and a fifth place in Iowa New Hampshire? And he's trying to pretend like those races didn't happen. And now the firewall, the new polls are coming out. The firewall is gone skis. You know, it's, it, Bernie's now leading in North Carolina. Come on and raise up. Take your shirt off. Twist it around your head. Spin it like a helicopter. <laughs> so it's, it's, we have good signs, good signs. And um, the media is shooting themselves in the foot, and I'm here for it. All right. Next. Let's talk about Elizabeth Warren. She disappointed... Yet again, this story is beyond disappointing. So on the night that Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire, Elizabeth Warren comes out and gives a speech. It's defiant. It's a speech that says, I'm not leaving. I'm staying in this race. Now, you could say, okay, that's fine. It is what it is. Go right ahead and do that. However, listen, she has no viable path to the, to the election. She was depending on New Hampshire and Iowa to give her a springboard effect into the upcoming states. She didn't get that springboard effect, and now she's going to states that are, you know, have giant populations of people of color, and she's struggling massively with people of color. What are you doing? What are you doing? There's no, there's no path for you. It's, it's just, it's getting sad. So, but okay, she wants to stay in, fine, by all means, stay in. On the night that Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire, she gives a speech, I wish I was kidding about this, congratulating Klobuchar. And what does she say? Well, you know, I'll let you guess before I say it. She leans into, yet again, this is a new strategy from her, and anybody who doesn't see it is trying not to see it. She leans into... Oh, Amy Klobuchar proves that women can do it. Ever since all the former uh, Hillary staffers and Kamala staffers came into her campaign, she has made a decision to lean into Bernie criticism and stress the fact that she's female and do the whole, like, girl power thing over and over. So that's one of the things she said. Congratulated Amy. Spoke about how a woman can win. And um, then she takes a shot at Bernie supporters. And says, like, you know, at at a time that's incredibly crucial, we have the supporters of some people cursing at the supporters of other people and calling them names. And that's not okay. And we can't have people trying to win this election who think that they and only they have all the answers. 
Those are all clear shots at Bernie Sanders, except they're underhanded. They're clear yet underhanded. So I was watching that. Many other people were watching that. And we were massively disappointed. We're looking at this. We're like, okay, listen. And you get the sense that Bernie almost wanted to give her a pass when she did the whole, you know, planned out thing where she accuses him of being a secret sexist and it massively backfired in her face. And she plummeted in the polls after that. But Bernie's a nice guy, and Bernie likes Elizabeth Warren. It seems like he wanted to give her another chance. And now what's she doing? She's like, no, I didn't deserve that second chance. I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go after you yet again. I'm going to go after your supporters yet again. So that was on the night in New Hampshire. The day after, a story leaks that the bosses of uh, the Culinary Union, Culinary 226 in Nevada, they are telling the workers, they're trying to scare the workers away from supporting Bernie Sanders. What they're doing is they're telling the actual workers, these are the union bosses, they're telling the workers, did you know that Bernie's Medicare for All bill will take away your health care? Did you know that? All these hard-earned benefits that you worked for, and Bernie wants to just come in and take those benefits away? Hmm, you know, probably not a good idea to caucus for him. Apparently this union has ties to Harry Reid, and Harry Reid has been making moves trying to get them to steer support away from Bernie Sanders, because, of course, among workers, Bernie Sanders has tremendous support. So that news broke, and guess what happened? In response to a ridiculous story where union bosses are trying to steer their workers away from the correct policy, which gives everybody health care, doesn't take away benefits, doesn't take away your health care, it gives everybody health care and it makes it free at the point of service. It's rank fear-mongering from corporate union bosses. So Bernie supporters on Twitter fire back. And they're like, no, this is wrong. This is not true. Medicare for all is the right policy. That's obvious. Anybody who's trying to tell you otherwise, they're a hack. They're a corporate hack. They're trying to scare you away from the correct candidate. Well, guess what? Then the culinary union bosses release a statement. Release a statement? What? What is that? Oh, we're going to release a statement. And what does the statement uh, say? Oh, my God, we're under attack by the mean swarm of, you know, Bernie supporters. And basically they're trying to say, like, we're being cyberbullied. This is a primary election. You're allowed to go out there and trash a candidate with bogus information, fear-mongering about Medicare for all, and you think the supporters of that candidate, you're not allowed to respond. See, this is what I mean. All the arguments against Bernie are so sleazy and underhanded and disingenuous. They can't just come out and say, we disagree with Bernie on policy, and here's why. Because if they do that, it's obvious that they're wrong and Bernie's right. So what do they do? All these underhanded, sleazy tricks. Oh, my God, the Bernie bros, and they're so mean, and I can't believe they were tweeting poop emojis at us, and I'm being cyberbullied. I'm under attack. I'm under attack. So that's the correct response from Bernie supporters. They're like, what are you doing? You're misleading your workers. So what happens? After all that unfolds, Elizabeth Warren releases a tweet and says the following. No one should attack Culinary Union 226 and its members for fighting hard for themselves and their families. Like them, I want to see every American get high-quality and affordable health care, and I'm committed to working with them to achieve that goal. You've been pretending all along you support Medicare for all. 
Now you're saying you agree with, you say the unions, really it's the union bosses, and they're against Medicare for all. And they want to try to keep the system as it exists right now. So which is it? Do you support Medicare for all or do you not support Medicare for all? And again, you said you support high quality, quote, affordable health care. Whoa, 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 whoa. We ain't talking about affordable. We're talking about free at the point of service. Yes, it saves money. Yes, it cuts costs over a 10-year period, $5.1 trillion to be exact, according to the University of Massachusetts Amherst. But you know, it's not affordable. It's free at the point of service. You're not saying free at the point of service. You're saying affordable. What are you doing? What are you doing? We know what you're doing. We see you. She's doing, yet again, she's doing an underhanded shot at Bernie, pretending to align with the union. I got news for Elizabeth Warren. And by the way, Amy Klobuchar released a similar statement and Pete released a similar statement. You're not siding with union workers. You're siding with union bosses against Medicare for all. We see you. We see you. You know those great union health care benefits that they get? Bernie's position is everybody should have those benefits. Everybody should have all of those benefits. Who would you deny those benefits to? Who would you deny them to? Please, I want you to tell those people to their faces. So if you happen to not be in the union, but you live down the street from where the union is, sorry, you're asked out. Maybe I'll get you an affordable option, but free at the point of service like every other developed country? No, I can't help you on that. You see what they're doing, man? Underhanded, sleazy, you know, attacks on the candidate who's leading who wants to get everybody health care. And pretending like Bernie and his people are against the union. We're not against the union. We're for the union workers. You're for the union bosses. And they're corrupt, fear-mongering, and misleading about Medicare for All. I don't want to hear anything ever again from anybody saying Elizabeth Warren supports Medicare for All. She simply doesn't. When she first started talking about health care, she did an interview with Jenk Uger at the beginning of the race. And what did she say? Every Democrat is basically in agreement on health care. We're all the same. We all want to get to the same place. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, an individual mandate system is not the same thing as a public option. A public option is not the same thing as Medicare for all. So when you try to conflate all the plans and obfuscate, what does that tell me? It tells me healthcare is not your thing. Healthcare is not a thing that you're committed to because you would be inflexible and you'd say, no, Medicare for all, that's it. That's what I support. But you don't do that. And then you release a plan that says, oh, we'll do it in two parts. First, we'll do the public option, and three years later, we'll come back and do health and do Medicare for all. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Guys, Elizabeth Warren has made some sort of a deal with Amy Klobuchar. That's clear. That's why she's been complimenting her when she does well, aligning with her in the debates, now continuing to take underhanded shots at Bernie and his supporters. She made a deal with Amy Klobuchar. I think the deal is, hey, if Amy, if you win, I'll be your VP. If I win, you'll be my VP. And what does that tell you about Elizabeth Warren? The fact that she's making a deal with Amy Klobuchar. That's like if Bernie Sanders made a deal with John Delaney. All of us would be like, whoa, hold on. So I guess you don't believe in the things you talk about because that guy nominally disagrees with you on almost everything. Why would you do that? He doesn't agree with you. But Elizabeth Warren can do it, and we're all supposed to pretend like, oh, no, no, it's cool. She still believes all those left-wing ideas. Anybody who thought, oh, she's just Bernie Sanders but younger and female, that is completely inaccurate at this point. Siding with union bosses against union workers, gaslighting, pretending Medicare for all is a problem. And, again, the thing I can't, under, I can't take is, like, 
If you're going to attack Bernie and his supporters, just say it. Just say it. Don't give me this nonsense about, like, no one should attack them and their members acting like Bernie supporters are attacking the union. No, they're attacking the crazy idea that they shouldn't have Medicare for all. They're attacking the fear-mongering and the gaslighting. Final point, the union leader who released that letter saying, oh, we're being attacked, oh. That leader also happens to be part of Neera Tandon, the Center for American Progress, the corporate wing of the Democratic Party that will stop at nothing to stop Bernie Sanders. Sleazy, underhanded attacks. And then they get mad when people decide, oh, I'm going to tweet some snake emojis at her. You want to know why they do that? Because she's acting like a snake. Oh, yeah, Bernie, totally, I support you, we agree, absolutely, he's my friend. Anyway, did I mention that he's a secret sexist behind closed doors, and that's why you should support me and not him? Did I mention that? Did I mention that his supporters are, you know, irredeemable, and they're attacking union, union employees, and I side with the union against the meanie Bernie supporters? Totally misstating and strawmanning what Bernie supporters are doing. Listen, I'm going to make this crystal clear for everybody out there. If you're a union worker... I stand with you. I want everybody to have health care in this country and everybody to have all the benefits you have, and I want you to have those same benefits and pay less and have it free at the point of service. I side with union workers. I do not side with the bosses. Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete have made their position crystal clear. To take out Bernie Sanders, they'll smear him and pretend like he's against the union when really he's in favor of the unions and they're in favor of the union bosses. Final point is... There's a, a list of who's been endorsed by various unions. Um, you know, one of these accounts that follows the ins and outs of politics tweeted it last night. So polling USA, the number of unions endorsing each Democratic candidate. You ready for this? Elizabeth Warren has four unions that have endorsed her. Wow, okay, four. I guess that's pretty solid. Joe Biden has nine. Joe Biden has nine. Wow. Bernie Sanders, 29 unions have endorsed him. Now, I don't know how many unions there are in total in the country. I don't know how many of them plan to stay neutral. I don't know how many of them plan to endorse Trump. A lot of them, you know, um, are sympathetic towards Trump, particularly because of the protectionism that he did and tariffs when it comes to the U.S. steel industry, because of NAFTA 2.0. Some unions endorsed NAFTA 2.0 because they don't like the old NAFTA. I would argue the new NAFTA is pretty bad as well, but they're saying, hey, that's better than the old NAFTA. So who knows about the rest of it? But that's why they're going after him like this, and that's why they're going after his supporters like this, because he's winning. So Elizabeth Warren, yet again, you let us down. And I'm at the point now where, I hate to say this, but I mean it. I don't even want you in the administration. Before I had thought, oh, Bernie's going to pick Warren for VP. Then she clearly stabs him in the back with the nonsense story about how he's a secret sexist. Then I said, okay, definitely not VP, but you know what? I could take her as a Treasury Secretary. I'll take that. Now, I don't even want you in the administration. Why? Because what the hell do you believe? What do you believe? See, I thought to some extent you were in politics because you actually believed in stuff. And, you know, you had your life's work, which you were fighting for. Regulation of Wall Street, for example, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The fact that you're willing to throw Bernie, your closest ideological ally, under the bus to align with Klobuchar for a pipe dream of winning, which is already gone, 
There's no core there. It's embarrassing, and it's sad. And I would be able to look myself in the mirror at night if I was Elizabeth Warren at this point. So congratulations on blowing all the credit that you had with the left. Now it's totally gone. Politics has broken her, and all of those Hillary advisors and Kamala advisors have completely steered her in the wrong direction. Guys, there was a day, there was like a week period, where Elizabeth Warren was leading this race. You want to know why? At that time, she was saying, yes, I'm exactly like Bernie Sanders. I'm just younger and female. Guess what? In a Democratic primary, all things being equal, if somebody really has the exact same politics as Bernie, but they're younger and female, the younger female version is going to win. They're going to win because there are plenty of people in the Democratic Party who really value identity politics, you know, um, in a way that's near and dear to them. So if you're actually equal to Bernie on policy and you're younger and female, that's going to win. But what happened? She collapsed from that top spot. Why? She backed off the Medicare for all. She accused the most progressive senator of our lifetimes of being a secret sexist. And now she's further digging her political grave by taking more underhanded pot shots at his supporters. It's one of the most depressing things in this election by far. Okay, now we are going to go to um, Ro Khanna. So Ro Khanna has been uh, stumping for Bernie Sanders, and, you know, here he is in an interview with Chris Matthews. He's going to respond to the attacks from James Carville on Bernie Sanders, and uh, then he's going to make the case for, you know, what is Bernie's legacy? What is he trying to do? This is good. Take a look. Everyone should have education. 
everyone should have basic child care. Basically, the things that I had uh, growing up. I worked with Silicon Valley. Let me tell you, Bernie Sanders is not talking about nationalizing Apple. There's no way I could represent Silicon Valley and support him if that was the case. He's talking about giving people a basic shot at the American dream and fulfilling the vision from FDR uh, forward. I love that pitch. I love that pitch. And Rokan is a great surrogate for that reason. He, he actually is, I think, a little more moderate than Bernie. And he, um, he can frame things in a way that doesn't freak out the establishment and the business community. Like, that doesn't sound scary. That sounds totally palatable. And unfortunately, you know... There's this notion of, oh, Bernie Sanders is a radical. Bernie Sanders is an extremist. Bernie Sanders is an ideologue, as they say. And it's like, well, you know, he's actually internationally quite moderate. And his opinions are right smack dab in the center of where the American people are on these issues. So at least by some ways of measuring it, he's a centrist. And what you have here with Ro Khan is Ro Khan is saying, because they're trying to argue now, oh, my God, is this going to be like 1972 where the Democrats went too far left and lost? And uh, Ro Khan is like, no, this is going to be like FDR's four elections where he won and couldn't stop winning because the last time America elected a real social Democrat, he was unbeatable. To the point where the Republicans were like, you know, I think we should do something uh, like term limits. Because if we don't have term limits, the Democrats will never lose an election again because they're just that much better than us. FDR was such a strong political figure that he dragged, um, you know, Republicans to the position of supporting some social democratic reform. Think about that. Such a strong political figure and such a winner that he dragged Republicans to social democratic positions. Now, obviously not as many as he supported, but still, they knew they had to make concessions or they were going to keep losing. So I love the framing there. It's 100% correct. And I also love the beatdown of James Carville because James Carville, listen, he's a reactionary fool. He's a right-wing Democrat at this point. That's what he is. He's a right-wing Democrat. I was on that panel with him at Politicon. And, um, you know, whenever I spoke about the victories of the left, oh, doesn't count. Those don't count for reasons X, Y, and Z. Those don't count. And he would go back and forth between talking about how we need to be moderate, we need to be moderate, we need to be moderate. And then what does he do? He sprinkles in the, and we need to elect more women. And so he tried, He does the classic, like, let's put a veneer of identity politics over standard corporate centrist neoliberal policies. And it is just the most cynical approach to politics, and I absolutely despise it. And Ro Khanna did do his homework there, as Chris Matthews points out. And he says, well, hold on. You ran somebody back in the day who was running on single payer and won and made up a 40-point gap. So what are you talking about? So, uh, and he did say the same things. Carville went after Obama viciously. So, and Obama obviously won. And they were saying the same, oh my God, he's a socialist. Oh my God, he's a Marxist. He wasn't. And he was, you know, even his campaign speeches were much more centrist and full of platitudes than Bernie's are. But the same arguments, oh my God, too far left. Oh my God, so extreme. Oh my God, so bad. And it's like, these guys have nothing. They have nothing. Their arguments are total trash and they're flailing, and they're useless. And so I'm happy that, you know, there's finally substantive rebuttals happening to these clowns, and I think Rokan is a great surrogate for Bernie. Okay. Now, before I go to my next thing, I am absolutely going to have to turn off 
the heat in here because it is a thousand degrees. It's like 80 degrees in the studio, and I hate it. Oh, boy. Okay. It's the middle of winter, and I've, I considered putting on the AC. That's how bad it is. <clears throat> Next. Next. Okay, here we go. Donald Trump is going to weigh in on the Democratic primary. President Trump weighed in on the Democratic race and who he'd like to run against This is an interesting little clip. Frankly, I'd rather run against Bloomberg than Bernie Sanders, because Sanders has real followers, whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not. I happen to think it's terrible what he says, but he has followers. Bloomberg's just buying his way in. Now, uh, you know, we know what the centrists are going to say in response to this. They're going to be like, oh, he's actually saying that because he would rather run against Bernie. He's doing like, you know, jujitsu here. And uh, he's actually scared of Mike Bloomberg. Is that possible? Yes. But even if Trump is doing that, he would have miscalculated. He would have miscalculated because Bernie is a much more formidable opponent. But what I will say is, in this instance, I think he's telling the truth. Why? Because it matches up with what he said behind closed doors. There was an article that came out in the Daily Beast, you know, a couple months back. And um, the article basically said Trump secretly admits running against socialism won't be so easy. And the policy he brings up specifically is debt cancellation. He thinks it's really hard to run against debt cancellation. Uh, and Bernie, of course, talks about medical debt cancellation and student loan debt cancellation. And that's a policy position Trump is going to struggle to come up with a counterargument to. And honestly, I think one of the reasons why Trump uh, feels that is because Trump himself has had massive debt issues his whole life. His businesses went bankrupt six times. Now, he inherited a tremendous amount of money from his dad. Um, but in terms of his businesses, you know, he went bankrupt six times, and he needed to be bailed out multiple times by financial institutions. Um, one of the Russiagate angles that is not BS, because most of Russiagate is total BS. Oh, my God, he's controlled by Putin and all that nonsense. He's a Manchurian candidate. That's ridiculous. But one of the angles that's not crazy is uh, Russian oligarchs, you know, basically giving him money and pumping up his failing businesses. So that's not a crazy conspiracy. Again, that's not tied to the Russian government. That's not tied to policy. That's tied to him being a terrible businessman and needing to be bailed out. So Trump can actually sympathize with people who are struggling with debt. And, you know, when a candidate comes along and says, oh, wipe it out. He's like, oh, oh, oh. That's not going to be easy to beat. Now, the funny thing is he's surrounded by 
people who have terrible political instincts. And this is something that conservative commentator Sagar from uh, the Hill TV and the show Rising, he talks about this all the time, that if Republicans think they can run a, you know, an election against Bernie Sanders and just keep bringing up socialism, 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 Venezuela, 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 they got another thing coming because they're going to lose if they run that election. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. Because you keep saying that, and Bernie keeps responding with, uh, actually, I'm talking about Denmark and what I want the rest of the developed world has, and we're going to give everybody health care, we're going to give everybody education, we're going to give everybody child care, we're going to raise your wages, we're going to work for you. A government's going to work for you, not the 1%. When he says that, and your response is, but Venezuela, Venezuela, people are like, mm, kind of a weak response, dog, and they're going to side with Bernie. So Sagar's been, you know, saying, hey, red alert on my team here. We're going to get destroyed if you go in that direction. But Trump is surrounded by people who only know that argument. He had, you know, Steve Bannon in his administration, and Steve Bannon understood the appeal of populism. He's a vicious bigot, and he's got terrible, you know, policies on immigration and a variety of other things. But on economics, he, he understands that populism works. You know, Trump every now and then likes Tucker Carlson and listens to and talks to Tucker Carlson. Tucker might understand that populism works, but 99% of the people around Trump are going to be like, no, Bannon's wrong. No, Tucker Carlson's wrong. No, forget the populism. No, you got to run all in on, you know, laissez-faire, unfettered, free market capitalism is the best. And look at how the market is doing. The market. Yes. Look at my wonderful stunks. Dunks have gone up. And that's not going to work. That's only a reflection of how corporations and the rich are doing. That's not a reflection of your average American. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. If Bernie's the nominee and he's up against Trump, what line of argument is Trump going to use? Because Trump has shown that he has the ability to – he has the instincts that are better than all of his advisors. So like that ad that was ran during the Super Bowl where he was bragging about freeing Alice Johnson. That's such a good ad because it's a left-wing ad, and everybody's going to look at it and go, you know, that's a good point. Trump's base is not going to abandon him over that because they don't abandon him over anything. So they're going to go, oh, look at that. He freed like this poor, innocent, grandma-like woman. And his base is going to love it. The right-wingers are going to love it. The lefties have to look at it and go, you know, I may agree with Trump, disagree with Trump on everything, but freeing Alice Johnson seems like a good thing. So that's, that's Trump with his own instincts. And I think that, in a general, if he's intelligent, he would try to pivot to the left of Bernie on some issues. Or the other thing that he would do is take the few issues where Bernie's position is not popular and hammer away on those and only define him by those issues. And then that would be hard for Bernie to wiggle out of. Like if Trump just keeps bringing up, he wants to let the Boston Marathon bomber vote. He wants to let terrorists vote. Okay, America, you want to vote for that? By all means, go right ahead. Uh, Bernie 2020, if Bin Laden was alive, I'd let him vote. (laughs) Like, that's the type of stuff he would say. Take a few issues where Bernie's not popular and just go, 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 go. You know, he'd probably lean into whatever kind of woke remnants there are in Bernie's team. Um, Lean into that stuff. You know, ask Bernie during the debate, how many genders are there, Bernie? And, like, he's more clever than people give him credit for. That's the point I'm trying to make. 
he will try to find ways to go after him that aren't stupid. But I hope the people around him, the establishment people, went out in the debate because then Bernie would destroy him. Um, but yeah, of course, the Democrats have put everybody in a weak position because they botched the Mueller report. They botched impeachment. So they've given Trump an approval rating that's the highest it's ever been. And it's right before the election. So the Democrats screwed up seemingly on purpose. And now it's going to be a tougher election uh, moving forward, no matter who's the nominee. But I do think that he would rather run against Bloomberg because Bloomberg, ha- he's right. Bloomberg has no actual support. He's buying support. He's buying in- influencers. He's buying YouTubers. It's a story that just broke. I mean, this is, this is what this guy's doing. There's another story that came out. Some people are working for Bloomberg and then also secretly supporting Bernie because they need the money. So they go to work for Bloomberg because they need the check. So, you know, he's right. Bloomberg has no real supporters. There's no enthusiasm there. Well, uh, again, this, is, this election is a test. How far can money alone take you? And right now it's bought him third place. It's bought him 10% to 13% in the polls. That's nothing to scoff at. But will it actually get you to win an election? That's tough because you actually got to get people out. You actually have to get people enthusiastic about voting for you. You actually have to get them to do something where they're in that booth and the curtains closed and nobody could see. It's them in their own conscience, and they're likely to go for who they actually want to go for. And that's probably not Bloomberg. So we'll see. But I think Trump actually means it when he says he'd rather run against Bloomberg than Bernie. I mean, if I was him, I'd, I'd believe and say the same thing. Okay. All right, let's talk about Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. So Andrew Yang officially dropped out of the presidential race. Um, now, I spoke about this the other day before he dropped out and, and said that there were signs there, firing national directors and whatnot. That's usually a sign you're going to drop out because it's not like his firings were limited just to Iowa. It was like, I'm going to the national organization too. So... You know, and listen, I actually feel for the Yang gang. I do, because I know the feeling that they have right now. I experienced the same thing in 2016 with Bernie. And you could argue, honestly, in the case of 2016 with Bernie, it was even worse because we know he got cheated by Hillary Clinton. So it was like, ugh, it just hurt so much. It just stung because it's like, this is total BS, man. This is total BS. Um, so... I feel for the Yang gang. I think Andrew Yang, even though I have some disagreements with him, I think he was a positive impact on this race because what he did is he took some conversations that were happening on the fringes and made them mainstream. He made universal basic income a serious issue to discuss. I have nothing but respect for him for that because I support universal basic income. Um, You know, decriminalizing all drugs, that's a position he took before anybody else. Now, Tulsi Gabbard has since leapfrogged him on that and said, you know, I want to legalize, tax, and regulate all drugs. That's even better in my opinion. But Andrew Yang was the first one to talk about decriminalizing all drugs at all. In fact, Bernie was asked about that, and he was like, I'm not there yet. 
In other words, he knows that his position is wrong, but he thinks that the, what he has to do to say to get elected, so he's saying it. Andrew Yang was like, no, I'll just tell you what the right thing is. I want to decriminalize all drugs. Nothing but credit uh, for him for that. Again, I have disagreements with him. On, on Israel-Palestine, I think he's been off. On Medicare for All, really upset with him over that because he says he supports Medicare for All, but then also admits, like, no, I'm not going to support the actual legislation Medicare for All, but I'm going to say that my plan is Medicare for All, even though it's not Medicare for All. So I had disagreements with him, but overall he was a, I was happy he was in the race. Because, and here's the main point. He actually believes in what he's talking about. He's not this empty suit, vapid careerist like so many of the establishment politicians. And as a result of that, he leapfrogged so many of these establishment politicians. Guys, remember, 538 had Beto O'Rourke. 538 had Kamala Harris as like number one and number two. I'm not sure which order, but they were number one and number two. Uh, as to who's likely to win this primary. Andrew Yang outlasted both of them. So, you know, he actually got people involved in the political process that weren't involved before. And they realized, oh, hold on now. Everything is political, and maybe we can actually do better. Maybe we can actually bring people into this election, bring people into the process that mean well and want to make positive change. So, again, nothing but respect for Andrew Yang on that front. Now, Here's what he said. This is interesting. He says, if any Democratic candidate wants his endorsement, they need to come out in favor of universal basic income. Now, if you guys remember, I spoke about that recently, and I said to, Ber to Bernie's team, I'm calling on you to talk to Andrew Yang, and if you endorse UBI, he will endorse you, I think. I said that before the dropout, and I think my instincts were correct. I think that, you know, if the Bernie team talks to Andrew Yang, and they say, listen, we'll endorse UBI. I think you would drop out and endorse Bernie. Um, and uh, I actually tend to agree on this issue. I agree with Yang more than Bernie when Bernie says my position is a federal jobs guarantee and Yang says my position is universal basic income. I actually agree with Yang over Bernie on that issue. So I hope that they sit down, and I hope Bernie and his team endorse uh, universal basic income. But here's what's interesting. The day after um, – Andrew Yang drops out the day after New Hampshire. Tulsi Gabbard releases a video and says the following. Hey, everybody. We just got into Charleston, South Carolina late last night and uh, wanted to take a moment this morning before we head out for the day to send a message to my friend Andrew Yang. Uh, Andrew, I've so enjoyed getting to know you throughout this campaign and am really grateful uh, for the friendship that we've developed. You've brought such an incredible energy uh, and creative ideas to this race that's been an inspiration for so many people. And I know you'll continue. You'll continue working for the positive change that we need in our nation as we all work together to usher in a bright future for all Americans. I'm going to continue to carry this torch of a universal basic income that will reinvigorate our middle class and those who are struggling just to make ends meet, bridge the income gap, and unleash an era of entrepreneurship and productivity. So to our many Yang Gang friends, I hope that you'll join our campaign so that we can invest in the American people instead of regime change wars, military adventurism, and a new Cold War and nuclear arms race. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. I hope you'll join us.
So on the one hand, yes, you got to give Tulsi credit because this is her, you know, capitalizing on a situation uh, where there's an opportunity here for her. She basically, this is an attempt to say, everybody who was part of Yang's team, come join us. Um, because I'm going to endorse the main thing that he was running on. And honestly, I think many, many, many Yang supporters, if not a majority of Yang supporters, are going to go, yeah, okay, great. That's, that's The main reason I was backing Yang was because he supports universal basic income. So now if Tulsi backs it, I'm going to go support Tulsi. So it's political savvy on Tulsi's part. And it's also... Uh, opportunistic on her part, but I will say this, and you know, it brings me no pleasure to say this, but I, it, I think it's necessary to say it. She has no path to the nomination anymore, and that's not, you know, breaking news to anybody. That's not shocking. And understand, I was the one who all along was arguing when people were saying before any votes were cast, Tulsi drop out, Tulsi drop out, Tulsi drop out, Tulsi drop out. What did I say? What did I say? I said, no, 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 no. If she wants to, stay in, see how you do, but stay in for the first three or four states and then see where you're at. And if there's no pass, I don't know why you'd stay in. Well, now we're two states in, and she has no pass. Now, again, I'll be super kind. If she wants to stay in for another one or two contests, if she wants to stay in for Nevada and she wants to stay in for South Carolina, by all means, go right ahead, Tulsi. Go right ahead. But nothing's going to change and you're going to find the same situation we have now is the same situation you'll have then. And there won't be a pass to the nomination. And um, since that's the case, I would hope that Tulsi would realize that, um, you know, the right thing to do would be to throw your support behind the person who's leading and the person who's winning, who agrees with you on most of the issues and who has a real shot. Now, again, I am not a believer in um, voter shaming. I'm not a believer in telling people, you know, what they can and can't do and what should and shouldn't happen. But what I do believe in is objective reality. And that's why I'm saying she has no path to the nomination, because that's true. She has no path to the nomination. So um, that is true, and also all of the other stuff I said is true, namely – Hey, you're your own person. You can make up your own mind. You can go in whatever direction you want to go in. Hell, she said, I'm going to stay until the convention. If you want to do that, you could do that. But, I mean, listen, if you are continuing, let's say, what did she get? About 3%, maybe 4% in um, New Hampshire. Let's say she continues and gets 2% in every state from here on out, which is actually an overestimate. Because when people realize you're not viable, more people flee you. Um, you know, what if the margin of victory for Bernie is 1%? Or what if he's down one percentage point when all is said and done? Again, that's not, Bernie is not owed Tulsi supporters. He's not. He's not. He's just not. So you can't blame Tulsi or the supporters for that. But is it going to be a lingering thought in the back of her own mind? Hey, what if I did something differently? Maybe that could have impacted the rest of the race. It's possible that that would haunt her a little bit. And she'd be like, whoa, uh, maybe what I did was not responsible. So, again, I listen, I get it, man. I, we were there in 2016 with Bernie Sanders when the nomination was stolen from him. I know exactly what it feels like. So I feel for the Yang Gang people. And I get what Tulsi's doing is politically savvy, trying to get all the Yang Gang people to her team. 
But what I will say to Tulsi is you have no path. So ultimately, this could be like a very nihilistic move where it's like you did this thing and then it comes to naught. And the, the final thing I'll say is this. If I was Tulsi, I would be thinking about the future, running for president in the future. And, you know, you don't want to get 1% or 2% in all 50 states because then that really impacts the perception of electability in the future, too. If she drops out now or she drops out in one or two more states, really no harm, no foul. There's so many people who ran that did worse than Tulsi. So people, it's not the next time an election comes around, nobody's going to be thinking about the fact that she didn't do that well. But if you stay in for 50 states and every state is 1%, 2%, 1%, 2%, people are going to be like, oh, so you're the person who got obliterated but decided to keep getting punched in the face. That's weird. And again, I'm saying this as somebody with nothing but love for Tulsi and her supporters. But, um, you know, the other part of my commentary, I think, should be and has to be, because it's only fair. Hey, man, Yang's, well, Yang's point is totally fair. This is my main policy, universal basic income. If you support it, then I will endorse you. So Tulsi came out and supported it. Now, my guess is. Yang understands right now that Tulsi's not viable. She has no path. So what he's doing is like seeing that she endorsed UBI and he's going, Bernie, could you please freaking come out and endorse UBI so I can endorse you because you actually can win? So that's what I think is happening, truth be told. Because Yang says, hey, I'll only consider endorsing people who endorse UBI. Okay, well, Tulsi did it. So why, now it's the day after. Why is Yang not out there already saying like, oh, I endorsed Tulsi? Because Yang knows she has no path to the nomination, and he would want his endorsement to mean something. So he's probably waiting on Bernie, like, oh, come on, what are you doing? Endorse UBI. And on that issue, I totally agree. And I would say to Bernie and his team, bro, do it. Endorse UBI. It is not – the idea that it – see, the problem is Bernie might actually not believe in it. He might actually believe in universal jobs guarantee, and he just doesn't support UBI. But, you know – I think the arguments for UBI are much stronger, and I think it's a better policy, and I think he should endorse it. <laughs> so I'm with Yang in, like, urging Bernie to support it because he is the front runner, He is the most viable candidate. We need all the support we could get, especially because the establishment is going to try to screw us again. So if that gets you another 3%, 4% moving forward of Yang supporters, or let's say only half of Yang supporters join, 1.5% or 2%. That, that could be the total difference in this race, bro. So I hope Bernie and his team consider it because it's really important. Okay. Um, let me take a break. When we come back, I will talk about Michael Bloomberg and how Benjamin Dixon obliterated him. So don't go anywhere. We got that and much, much more.
Alright, I'm back, y'all. And I still got a lot of show to go through. Okay, so where was I? I was talking about Michael Bloomberg. Alright, here we go. Benjamin Dixon is uh, a fellow left-wing commentator, and um, he unearthed some damning Bloomberg audio uh, where he talks about stop and frisk and says some very questionable things, to say the least. So um, this first clip that you're about to see was uh, unearthed by, um, again, fellow left-wing commentator Ben Dixon. Great job and massive credit to him for finding this and releasing it. Uh, Hashtag Bloomberg is a racist was trending as a result of this. And he did such a great job that he forced it into the national conversation and he forced it to be covered by mainstream media. And listen, this is, it's important because guys, as I discussed um, on our last show, Bloomberg is buying the media, like literally, like he's buying, you know, at worst silence, at best active defenses of his record. There's a reason why you don't see very much critical coverage of Bloomberg. Because when you spend $351 million on ads, as he's done to this point, guys, I don't know if you know this, he is like keeping in business countless local news stations, He's giving the national news outlets, cable news, massive checks. I mean, where do you think that money goes? That money goes to the networks. So they love that he's running. And so it's much more likely that they'll defend him, or at the very least, stay silent about him when there's a scandal. So Ben Dixon did such great work here that he basically forced them to cover this story by making it blow up so much on Twitter. So again, massive credit to him. This first clip you're about to see was unearthed by Ben Dixon. This second clip that you're about to see was one that we knew that this quote was out there, but I had never heard the audio of it. Now we have the audio of it as well. So these are two separate times he's talking about stop and frisk. Listen. Of those who witnesses and victims 
describe as committing murder. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. All right, so let me break down, you know, why this is wrong. So to the first thing he said, oh, you know, just Xerox the description and pass out because all the suspects of the crimes look the same. Okay, but does that mean that everybody who fits that description in New York City should be stopped and frisked? So, sorry, if you just happen to be a black male between this age and this age, you are by definition a suspect. And if you're caught walking down the street by a cop minding your own business, they're going to search you. And you could go to www.shutupandtakeit.com. That's the argument. The argument is, hey, man, what do you want me to do? There's criminals, but if you Xerox the description and pass it out, the criminals fit that description. So what am I going to do? Apparently what you're going to do is crack down 99% on innocent people and take away their protection from unreasonable search and seizure, their constitutional rights. So make no mistake about it, guys. That's what he's effectively arguing for. Yeah, 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 forget constitutional rights, forget protection from unreasonable search and seizure. They're black males between this age and this age. Come on, that's what we got to do. We got to search them. Who's committing the crimes, bro? Who's committing the crimes? That is a terrible argument to make. And that is a deeply bigoted argument. So everybody who's a black male between a certain age, they're by definition, you know, more suspect and should be searched willy-nilly. Because some people who fit that description commit crimes. If you flip that argument, guys like Michael Bloomberg realize how ridiculous it is. Namely, the overwhelming majority of mass shooters are white people. It's white men, you know, in, in a certain age group, you know, whatever the age is. I don't know the exact numbers, but probably like late teens until 45 or whatever. Most mass shooters are white men that are in that range. So as a result of that, would it be okay to stop and frisk any white male who fits that description? No, right? I mean, that's obviously preposterous, right? Because you think, okay, even if that's true, even if it's true that white men, you know, are more likely to be mass shooters, that doesn't mean that all white men are by definition suspect and you search them all. Because the country's what? I, I I actually don't even know the percentage that are white men, but I know white men are the majority. Well, white women actually might be the majority, but white men are close to the majority in the U.S. There are more white men than almost any other, uh, you know, race, uh, ethnic group, background, gender. Again, I think white women, there are more white women than white men, but there are a lot of white men in this country. So people would understand, okay, that's a little ridiculous. You get all of them in that age group are guilty by definition, or you think you could just search them because some white men are mass shooters. It's crazy. But with black men, they don't care. Lump them all in. Who cares? Lump them in. You know, cops, do what you got to do and move on. That's the mindset. And then you wonder why, you know, people are looking at this guy like, you think you have the judgment and the character to be president? Get out of here, man. Okay, so then he says, this one really got under my skin. Well, yes, we arrest minority kids for marijuana, but that's because all the cops are in that area because that's where the crime is. No, the problem is you don't consider other kinds of crime crime because it's your friends doing it. Namely, 
Are you going to tell me there weren't countless crimes on Wall Street? Now, they're not violent crimes on Wall Street. Well, I don't know. Uh, You certainly can consider taking people's homes from them a violent crime. And that is definitely what happened on Wall Street. We know that's what happened on Wall Street. We know that predatory lenders sold, you know, adjustable rate mortgages, ballooning rate mortgages, and then people lost their homes. And the people who sold them the mortgages knew that what they were doing was wrong. Fraud was a freaking business model, you know, uh, with Goldman Sachs. You have all these criminals. They're gangsters on Wall Street. They're, they're robbing people. They're crashing the world economy in the process. But that doesn't count. That doesn't count because they're white guys and they wear suits and ties. So if you steal from people billions of dollars and you tank the global economy, you did it while being polite and civil and having proper decorum and wearing a suit and tie. So you're a, fundamentally different than somebody who robs a convenience store, let's say. So uh, it's just it's beyond ridiculous. You're telling me if you stopped and frisked people on Wall Street, you know what you'd find? A hell of a lot of cocaine. But you didn't search there because you don't want to search there. You want to know why? Because those people have a lot of money and power. They have a lot of money and power. So that's why you don't do it. So what you do is you go after poor minority communities. And you pretend oh, they're, they're the only people doing bad stuff. And by the way, again, yes, we arrest more minority kids for marijuana because that's where the crime is. Okay, but... Why not only go after the violent crime? If you only went after the violent crime, nobody would be disagreeing with you. He'd be like, yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. What do you want him to do? He was arresting murderers and robbers. What do you want him to do? That's what you do as cops. Duh. But that's not what he's talking about. He said, yes, we arrest for marijuana crimes. Well, that's the problem. Those things shouldn't be crimes. And what's happening on Wall Street is way worse. So, okay, that annoyed me. But now let me give you some more specifics on stop and frisk so you get a sense of just how wrong he was. And you see how vociferously he defended these policies. And now he did his fake apology because he wants to be president, but he doesn't mean it. He still believes every single goddamn word that he said. This is as recent as 2015. One of those clips was 2013, I think. The other one was 2015. So um, stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional. That's why it stopped. Is because judges were like, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> Any plain face reading of the Constitution, any plain face reading, you realize, oh, the Fourth Amendment protects from cruel and unusual. Oh, I'm sorry. Eighth Amendment is cruel and unusual punishment. Fourth Amendment is unreasonable search and seizure. Um, And judges say this obviously violates the Fourth Amendment. This is obviously an unreasonable search and seizure. Your suspect is because you're walking down the street and you happen to be a black male. No. How about a hard no on that? So that's why stop and frisk stopped. And now here's the fact that, you know, he now mentions and acknowledges, but he wouldn't acknowledge it at the time. Stop and frisk. As soon as it stopped, if these guys were right, crime would have went up. Because it helps stop crime when you stop and frisk, right? No. When they stopped doing stop and frisk, crime dropped. So that means you're harassing people and taking away their constitutional rights, and it's not even effective. It doesn't even help with reducing the crime rate. And also there was an independent study of the city's stop-and-frisk program, and it found that 87% of the 685,724 stops in 2011 were of blacks and Latinos, young black men between the ages of 14 and 24, 
were stopped 106% of the time, which means that there were more stops of young black men than the entire population of young black men. Now, here's the, the big fact that they can't get around. Out of 2.4 million stop and frisks, there was just a 3% conviction rate, so 97% failure rate, 3% conviction rate, 0.3% of the 2.4 million stops led to jail sentences of more than 30 days. 0.3%. And you ready for this? Just 0.1% led to convictions for violent crime. So to me, that's the only number that matters there. The only numbers, because we're all against violent crime, we all want to stop violent crime. This policy, which was nominally to stop crime, violent crime, 99.9% of the time it failed. So you take away people's constitutional rights, you waste resources, and 99.9% of the time you're just wrong and you're harassing the poor people who are getting stopped and frisked. I'm done with you. I don't need to know anything else. You're, you're done. You're done. You're done. This is the kind of guy he is, man. He's also the kind of guy who decides on a whim, I'm going to ban large sodas because I don't like when people drink large sodas because obesity's bad, so I'm just going to ban the large sodas. Who does that? Of all the problems, that's the one that you're focused on? Not like, you know, hey, do some people not have health care in the city? Hey, there's homeless people. Maybe we should address that in a more substantive way. No, I, I don't. Big sodas are bad. I'm going to ban the big sodas. That's all I need to know about you, dog. You're an authoritarian goon. That's what you are. You're an authoritarian goon. The kind of authoritarian goon who does stuff like this while also vetoing a minimum wage increase in New York City, as he did as mayor, and spying on Muslims. And the list is endless. The clip came, came out of him the other day talking about how we need to raise taxes on the poor because they have bad habits. Piss off. You know what's a bad habit? Spending $351 million trying to buy a country, trying to buy the presidency. That's what's unacceptable. So finally, let's hope this guy gets some goddamn scrutiny, even though he bought the freaking media. Let's hope he gets some goddamn scrutiny. And again, massive credit to Benjamin Dixon for forcing this into the national conversation. Okay. All right, next. <clears throat> We're going to cover Jank Uger. The Democratic establishment is trying to stop him. They are trying to stop Jank Uger. Trying to stop Jank Uger. Okay. So it looks like the Democratic establishment is going to try something to stop Jank Uger. They've already pulled out a couple dirty tricks. They're not done yet. Um, they know, man, that they can't let him win because if they let him win, it's over. It's over. I mean, it was already, to them, it was already like bad enough that, oh my God, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, we have insurgent candidates 
who are winning. They toppled somebody who is one of the next in line to be Speaker of the House, Joe Crowley. I mean, this to them, it's like, whoa, what's happening here? There's a sea change in the party. We're done with the neoliberal corporate centrism. It's not 1987 anymore. So we've evolved. We're back to FDR-style politics. We're back to social democracy. So Jank Uger represents not only somebody who represents that philosophy, but also somebody who's an enforcer. So what that means is he sets the conversation. He sets the dialogue. He sets the terms of the debate. So you can't, as much as, you know, on this show, we have nothing but love and respect for Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and all the justice Democrats. Are they enforcers, though? No. Enforcer is like, I, I don't care. I'm going to lead here, and I, I'm okay with the media shitting on me relentlessly. I'm okay. They're gonna, whatever they want to do, they could do. I'm setting the terms of the conversation. So I'm going to go out there and say, oh, no, 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 we're doing Medicare for All. And if you're not on the, on the side of Medicare for All, well, let me check your fundraising numbers and let me see how much money you raised from for-profit health insurance companies and big pharma. Oh, look at that. You raised a lot of money from them. It's almost like you're a complete sellout. Imagine speeches on the floor of Congress where you have a Democratic congressman calling the Democratic leader a corrupt sellout. That's what you're going to get with Cenk Uger. And it's going to be awesome. Now, they know this. They can't, their whole game with all the corruption and the big money and the lying to the constituents and, you know, gaslighting everybody and then serving corporations and the rich, that whole game is up if the enforcer gets in there. So look at what's happening now. The DCCC chair, Sherry Bustos, called for California's congressional delegation to meet at 5 p.m. to discuss California 25. That's Katie Hill's old seat. That's a stop Jank Uger meeting. Here's what they know. He's in the ballpark with uh, Christy Smith, the opponent. He's in the ballpark with fundraising. That scares them. That scares them. Also, he's got a grassroots army. They don't have that enthusiasm that he has. They don't have people knocking on doors and making phone calls and excited to get him elected. They don't have that. So they're panicking, and they want to try to come up with something to stop him. So um, at the same time that they're planning the Stop Jank Uger uh, meeting and they're having it, he released an ad. Let's take a look at that. Outsiders are America. I remember when I came to this country at eight years old, I didn't even know what an immigrant was. My father would tell me stories about his life how he grew up as an olive and grape farmer in Turkey. He would pick olives and pull weeds out until his hands blood. Eventually, his hands calloused and he could work longer days. Soon, he decided to pave a new path in his life. After fighting for and winning a free education in Istanbul, he came to graduate school in America. If it wasn't for that opportunity that my dad received, I'd still be in that field. I learned the value of hard work while on construction sites with him. That belief in the American dream is what led me to starting an online media company out of my one-bedroom apartment. Doing that allowed for a national platform for the working class to be heard. Now it's time to get louder. The insiders in D.C. have money, 
but we've got people. I'm going to D.C. to shut down corruption in politics. That means being the strongest candidate running, fighting for Medicare for all, and a woman's right to choose what happens to her own body. It's also standing up to corporate donors, corrupt lobbyists, and anyone else who doesn't have the interests of the working class at heart and saying, not on our watch. Climate change is real. Our district is on fire. Oil and gas companies took home all the profits and left us with the cost. Our housing system is in crisis, and none of my opponents seem to care. How long are we going to walk by our homeless Americans, our veterans, our neighbors, and do nothing? It has to stop. I'm Jay Huger. I'm a father, a son, an immigrant, an outsider. All we ever wanted was a fair chance, and that's what you deserve, because outsiders are America. I'm Jay Huber. I approve this ad because I represent you and only you. It's really interesting to see an ad from a politician that brings up homelessness. That's not something that happens, and the reason why that doesn't happen is because there's not as much of a voting constituency among homeless people. So politicians just out of sight, out of mind. I don't care that it's a real problem that needs to be addressed. What do I get out of it? There's no big homeless lobby, and there's no voting constituency there. So he's doing it because he wants to fix the problem. Wow. Imagine having a politician that wants to fix problems instead of, you know, being a vapid careerist and uh, get wealthy. So... That's a very strong ad there. I like how he mentioned Medicare for All. I like how he spoke about climate change. I like the reference to homelessness there. So they're scared, man. They really are. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about the other day is um, it's interesting. At the beginning of this race, what did they do? They threw everything they had at him up front, expecting him to bow out in shame, expecting him to be like, oh, you're right. I said bad things in the past. I give up. You win. But, of course, he did the opposite. He was like, yeah, okay, I see what you're doing here. It's silly. You're trying to smear me. Let's talk about the issues. But they threw everything they had at him. And what do they do? Oh, go back to a blog from the year 2000. Go back to things that are out of context on TYT from back in the day. I mean, the dude has been on air for, you know, a lifetime already. He's been on air. Like, there were times where it was three hours a day. Now it's like two hours a day. But there was the time they were on all the way back in, like, 2002, So I think all those years, basically 18 years of being on air. So, yes, if you if you try to if you pick things and take them out of context and twist them, sure, you can go, oh, my God, that thing he said was offensive. But, you know, I was thinking about it. Nobody ever does the opposite. Nobody ever says, hey, let me go back and objectively look at some of the things you said and uh, see, you know, where you really are on the issues, because to me, that's all that matters is the policy issues. So um, I went back, get this, guys. This is when I first discovered uh, TYT. It was in, I believe, it was 2008, and I had already started doing my thing as a hobby, okay? This was back when I'm, I'm a student, but I did some political videos as a hobby, and I found TYT, and this, these are some of my first ever liked videos on YouTube, 
where I saw rants from Jenk, and I was like, oh, oh, okay, I like this. So uh, here he is. You're going to see him talk. These are two separate shows on two separate days in 2008. One of them he's talking about the Wall Street bailout, and another one he's talking about the Iraq war. Now, he was always against the Wall Street bailout and always against the Iraq war from day one, one of the few voices against the Iraq war. But guys, as you watch this, just understand, this is why they're doing everything they can to stop him from getting elected. Wall Street and the guys running these companies, they made a killing off these loans. They made money off the fees. They made money off the interest. They made money off the principal. They made money left and right. And then they go, oh, oops, we screwed it up. And it turns out these aren't good loans. And now we're in a lot of trouble. Hey, Mr. Taxpayer, why don't you come bail us out? And we already took all the profits. Why don't you take the loss? And Henry Paulson and George Bush and their entire Republican Party come and say, great idea. What's a stick it to the taxpayer? And they run this thing the other night as a news story. And there's hardly a peep the first night, except I looked at it and I had to read the story three times to make sure I had it right. I, I said, I don't understand why this isn't gigantic news, why this isn't colossal news, and why everybody isn't livid over it. So, finally, uh, you know, a day goes by, and it sets in, and people realize, whoa, it turns out this is big news. You know what it might cost us? A trillion dollars. Henry Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, guarantees it's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars and likely a trillion dollars. I have one very simple question to start with. Why the hell should we pay it? What, are we nuts? What, they already made all the money and we're going to take all the losses? Are we stupid? Hell no! Hell no! This is madness, man. And this, why am I so angry over this? It's such a bad plan. It shouldn't, doesn't have a chance of passing, right? This is why I'm livid. Both sides, Republicans and Democrats, John McCain and Barack Obama, everybody agrees. Great idea. Let's sign on to it. And off it goes. Trillion dollars up your ass. And we're done with it. <laughs> now, you know who's ecstatic over this? Wall Street. Yeah, on Friday... Stocks went through the roof. Why? They couldn't believe their luck. They should have been screwed for all their mistakes. Instead, we just took all their bad loans and we ate it. And they were laughing all the way to the bank. The banks that should have been bankrupt were going the wrong way. So if you gave, uh, if you said I'm going the right way, and I can show it to you, and you see I've got ten miles left to go, if you give me more time, I'm going to get there. I say, well, all right, okay, I don't like that we've spent so much time getting there. But I understand your plan. Go ahead and drive the extra 10 miles and we'll get there. But if you tell me you're driving the wrong way another extra 10 miles, after we've already driven 1,000 miles in the wrong way, why would I let you keep going? And we're going the wrong way because there is no plan. There is no unified Iraq to hand over and to have it be stable and secure and peaceful for, and flourishing for us to leave. The Iraqi army we're training is never going to get trained because it doesn't really believe in centralized Iraq. Let me give you one more analogy on it. you got a company. We'll use a business analogy here. You've got a company that says, look, here's how I make money, and here's how I'm going to make it, and here's how it's already working. 
And the problem is I got cash flow issues. I don't have enough money to get me to my goal. But if you see that if I get to my goal, I'm going to be very profitable. As a businessman, you look at that and go, oh, I see. If I give him more time and I give him more money, he is going to get to his goal, right? So he might or he might not, but it's a risk worth taking. So if Petraeus and Crocker today and yesterday laid out a strategy and say, here is our goal and here is how we're going to get to it, and this is why we need more time, i say, okay, I can understand that. But they specifically told, in no uncertain terms, the United States Congress, we don't really have a plan for leaving Iraq, we don't have a real good goal, and we don't really know how to get to that goal. But we'd like more time. But wait a minute, that's crazy. Because that's a guy running a company that comes to you and says, look, I need more money and I need more uh, time. I say, okay, all right, what's your plan for making more money? He said, oh, I don't have a plan for making more money. Well, you don't? Well, did you make any money in the past? No, I've been losing money for five straight years. Well, how are you going to make more money in the future? Oh, I'm not going to. But then why would I give you more money? What, am I crazy? That's not just stupid. That defines all reason. Now, I have some very clear disagreements with Cenk Uger. Him and I debated Russiagate. You know, I disagreed with him massively on impeachment. And I'm sure moving forward, I will continue to have many disagreements with Cenk Uger. But here's what I know for damn sure. And I think these videos are such a great example of it. This is a guy who is going to fight for you. He's not going to compromise away the well-being of his constituents. He will always do what's best for his constituents. So even though I have disagreements with him on a variety of issues, it's really irrelevant because he's by far and away the best candidate in this race. And um, to me, it's a no-brainer. Anybody who was saying these things at the time, and remember, this was controversial at the time for him to say these things. He was the only one saying these things at the time. Um, he was the voice of the people. And in Congress, he'll be the exact same thing. So the fact that they're organizing against him and they're trying to take him down and they're having meetings about it, that should tell you everything you need to know. So I'll leave the, um, you know, the link for um, Jenks' campaign below, and if you want to donate, you can. He's doing it Bernie Sanders style, guys. He's doing uh, no corporate PAC money, no billionaire money. He's only taking small-dollar donations from regular people because he's only going to represent regular people. So if you want to give 5 bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 30 bucks, link is in the video description box. And, of course, yet again, I wish Jenks the best, and I hope he crushes Christy Smith. I think we're on to, oh, no, we're not. We're going to do the Goldman Sachs one first, and then, wait, are we doing the Goldman Sachs? Yeah, we're doing the Goldman Sachs story, and then after that, we'll get to Trump's budget. You don't want to miss my story on Trump's budget because it's crazy. The former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs spoke up uh, against Bernie Sanders winning the New Hampshire primary. He had, you know, what was basically like a panicked tweet on that night. So here's what he said. 
If Democrats go on to nominate Sanders, the Russians will have to reconsider who to work for to best screw up the U.S. Sanders is just as polarizing as Trump, and he'll ruin our economy and doesn't care about our military. If I'm Russian, I go with Sanders this time around. Think about how ridiculous that tweet is, how over-the-top that tweet is. He says, oh, Bernie's going to ruin our economy. No, he's going to make life for you more difficult because you're a Wall Street gangster. Yes, Wall Street will struggle. Main Street is going to do just fine. In fact, they're going to do better. He'll ruin the economy. You know what that means? Oh, my God, what about the Dow Jones? What about the NASDAQ? What about the corporations? What about the billionaires? Oh, my God, what about them? Yeah, we know where your loyalties lie. But then, of course, listen, and we warned you about this. There were only a handful of us who were correct about Russiagate all along, but we warned you about this. Of course this was going to happen. Of course the whole Russia, Russia, Russia angle was going to be flipped on the left. And that's exactly what you're seeing now. So he's like, well, of course, you know, Trump is uh, following Putin's orders. But, you know, if I'm uh, Putin, I'm going with Bernie this time around, because Bernie at least is also against our military, where at least Trump is not against our military. Okay, what he means by that is Bernie wants to cut military spending. And that is only the most rational thing anybody could ever do ever since we spend more than the next 10 biggest nations combined. See, look at how they twist things, man. That's so disingenuous. That's so dishonest. He wants to help Putin by, you know, cutting our military spending. We could cut our military spending in half and still have, by far and away, the most powerful military in the world. And, mind you, if we cut our military spending in half, then, you know, we can maybe address our infrastructure, which gets a grade of D+. I mean, what a ghoul this guy is, man. Just a, so gross. Like, why, is, why should anybody listen to you? Okay, now that gets to the, to the next point, which is when this guy, Lloyd Blankfein, was Goldman Sachs CEO, he received an $824 billion bailout, was fined over $5.5 billion for mortgage fraud. He avoided U.S. taxes by stashing up profits overseas. And then on top of all of that, he lobbied to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid um, for the people. So that's who this guy is. And he's going to do this whole tap dance moving forward. Oh, my God, socialism is so bad. Bernie represents socialism. Except he's a social Democrat, which is just like the Scandinavian model, which is wildly successful. But all the fear-mongering about socialism did – Did this guy say, did Lloyd Blankfein say, when the government came to him with a bailout, no, please, good sirs, take your $824 billion and walk away with it. I don't want it. You want to know why I don't want it? Because I don't believe in big government, and I don't believe in socialism. You do believe in socialism. You believe in corporate socialism when it helps you and your rich friends. That's when you never stood up on principle and said, no, 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 no. I believe in unfettered, laissez-faire, free market capitalism, where if you make it, you make it, and if you lose and you fail, you fail. You go bankrupt. Deal with it. See, that's what he'll say if it's a small business, if it's a local dry cleaner, if it's a deli. Oh, did you not make enough money? Are you going out of business? Tough cookies. That's how the system works. But him? 
Oh, $824 billion bailout. Gimme, 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 gimme. Well, what happened? I thought you were a capitalist. I thought you hate socialism. You love it when it helps you and your rich friends. And then also remember, Goldman Sachs, guys, what they did, it's not discussed nearly enough. What they did is they would have these toxic subprime mortgage packages. And at the same time, they were selling these packages to unsuspecting clients saying these are AAA rated, these are great, you're going to make a lot of money. At the same time they were doing that, they would bet on those packages to fail and they would make money that way too. So you screw over unsuspecting clients and then you turn around and bet on the thing that you just sold pretending it was awesome, you bet on that thing to fail. That's fraud. There's no two ways about it. That's the textbook definition of fraud. It's like if a, a car salesman sells you a car, tells you it's great, it's working fine, we had it checked, here's the inspection sticker, so on and so forth, and then he turns around and bets his buddy, hey, when that guy drives it out of the lot, the wheels are going to fucking fall off. And then he drives out and the wheels fall off and he gets paid two ways. You paid him and he lied to you and he gets paid by his buddy when he made the bet. That's what that is. Now, these guys are the slimiest motherfuckers on the planet. They think like, oh, yeah, we're smart because we made money doing it. You're fraudsters by definition. So, and, and now you're indignant that a guy's running for office who thinks people should have health care and education? Piss off, man. Piss off. Dodging taxes, too. Nobody should be listening to these guys. He should be, Lloyd Blankfein should be in prison. Did I stutter? In a, in a world that makes sense, with a system that's not corrupted, Lloyd Blankfein would be in prison. Instead, he gets a little slap on the wrist with a $5.5 billion fine, and that is just a slap on the wrist because I'm sure they made way more money than that. Um, but he does that, and then he could still sit in his ivory tower and pontificate about, you know, ooh, Vladimir Putin is going to be helped out by Trump, but now he would definitely be helped out by Bernie even more. Is this what this race comes to? This is, Bernie should put this right on his anti-endorsement list because this is as good as it gets. Okay, next. So I have a little discussed fact that came out the other night uh, during the New Hampshire primary. Now, Bernie Sanders won on the Democratic side. He won by about two percentage points, about 4,000 or so votes. Um, and turnout was up. Turnout was up over 2016. It was, uh, you know, about what it was, or it just eclipsed in terms of raw numbers. It eclipsed 2008 levels. Um, but there was a Republican primary too. Now, granted, the people running against Trump are absurd. You have Joe Walsh, who's basically, he was just like Trump. He was just another loudmouth. Um, and now he's positioning himself as like, oh, I'm the anti-Trump loudmouth, um, who's also a Republican. And he wants like, you know, his version of loudmouth silliness to be the future of the Republican party. You know, you're too late, bro. It's over. <laughs> Trump's got an iron grip on that party. They love him more than they love any of the other characters, including yourself. Um, but also there was Bill Weld. Now, Bill Weld is, uh, of course, most famously known for standing next to me at a Politicon meet and greet where he had like one or two people on his line and I had about a thousand. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. He's not most known for that, but that's how I most know him because I'm the, I'm the guy who was whispering on camera like, this 
guys are running for president. Nobody's here. <laughs> so Trump does not exactly have the strongest opponents here. But take a look at what happened in this election. He had a record-breaking turnout. He had 118,774 people come out to vote for him in New Hampshire on an off year. Now compare that to Obama, Bush, Clinton, and Reagan. Look at that. 49,000, 53,000, 76,000, 65,000. Look at that. So Trump absolutely obliterated previous numbers for an incumbent president on an off year. Now, you know, I'm sure corporate Democrats and the media will try to brush this off, but let's be serious, man. That is nothing to scoff at. And you are out of your mind if you think that this doesn't show strength. It does. It just does. So Trump has been doing a lot right in terms of campaigning. He just has. Trump is the first president to never stop doing rallies. He does rallies all the time. All the time. Ever since he got elected, he still never stopped doing rallies. He keeps doing rallies. Now, what that does is it throws red meat to the base, it riles them up, and it gets them on his side, and it keeps them excited. It does. Other presidents don't do that. He made a political calculation. And by the way, I think he does it because he actually genuinely enjoys doing the rallies. It's one of the few things he loves in this world. So he does his rallies, and it has tremendous upsides for him politically. They just do. It helps him. So, you know, he keeps his base really excited. And then let's face it. The other thing is the Democrats couldn't have been worse if they tried coming up with anti-Trump arguments. They're embarrassingly bad. So they did the whole Mueller report and that flopped miserably. Uh, Then they did impeachment. That flopped even worse. And every step of the way here, they actually had the opposite of the intended effect. They thought like, oh, we'll do this and it'll take down Trump, or it'll at least get the voters to our side and realize how terrible he is. Wrong. The exact opposite happened. I told you, he just hit his record high approval rating right before acquittal. It was clear already that he was going to get acquitted, but he had a 49% approval rating, which is higher than he's ever been. Even on his, his day, the day of his election, he wasn't that popular. Um, and now I predicted that, you know, post um, the acquittal, his approval rating will finally break 50% for the first time. Now, I haven't seen any polls since the 49% one, but I'm sure that he will break 50%. So um, this is where we're at, man. And the Democrats have made it, so it's going to be difficult no matter who the nominee is. Even if it's Bernie, we have a race on our hands now, guys. I used to say all the time, oh, if it's Bernie versus Trump, I'm not even entertaining the idea that Trump beats Bernie. Now that's not the case. Now, even if it's Bernie, we have a race on our hands. It's not a layup election. It's a difficult election. So the Democrats have botched this a thousand ways. They've made Trump stronger. They just have. And um, we're going to have to be very clever, very crafty, very intelligent moving forward in, uh, in running against them. And here's what I can almost guarantee you. I, it is, I think, I think if it's Trump versus any other candidate but Bernie, as of right now, the race is 80% likelihood Trump gets reelected. If it's, any, if it's Biden somehow uh, by a miracle or Bloomberg or frickin', you know, Klobuchar or Mayor Pete or Warren, if it's any of them, 80% chance Trump gets reelected. And forget it. Let's say Bernie wins and gets more votes, but then they try to take it from him on the second ballot. Pff, layup election for Trump. So 
this is the, the place we're in right now. And corporate media is not going to be honest with you because they hate Trump and they just project that on everybody. So uh, we're in a pickle and we better be intelligent with getting out of it. Okay, next. Okie dokie, dokie. All right, Donald Trump released a budget, and I'm going to go through it with you, and you're going to see just how much of a fraud this man is. He really is. He's a giant fraud, bro. President Trump released his 2020 budget, and it is, without a doubt, the most absurd, anti-worker, elitist document of all time. So let me give you a breakdown. $1.5 trillion in cuts to Medicaid over 10 years is in the budget. $1.5 trillion in cuts to Medicaid. Uh, Implementing work requirements as well as eliminating the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act that'll kick more people off their health care. The budget instead adds $1.2 trillion for market-based health care grant. So again, that's an effective cut, as you can see, uh, an effective $300 billion cut. The block grant to states, instead of uh, paying by need, it's not clear whether that would be part of Medicaid An $845 billion cut to Medicare over 10 years. Remember, Trump promised not to cut Medicare, and now his budget cuts Medicare. Um, That's a 10% cut, and it's to be achieved through targeting wasteful spending and provider payments and lowering prescription drug costs, uh, which he hasn't done. And the proposals on that front are very weak and can easily be gamed. It has a $25 billion cut to Social Security over 10 years, including cuts to disability insurance. It has a $220 billion cut to Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is, which is food stamps. Um, and it's a $220 billion cut over 10 years, including mandatory work requirements. And the program, as of right now, uh, serves about 45 million people. They want to cut that drastically. Uh, It has a $21 billion cut to temporary assistance for needy families. I believe that's, um, you know, the fancy way of saying welfare. Um, And that's already severely underfunded uh, program. You have $207 billion in cuts to the student loan program, eliminating the public service loan forgiveness program, and cutting subsidized student loans. So going in the opposite direction of what Bernie Sanders wants to do, Uh, He wants to increase, this is the first increase we've seen, and it's an increase in defense spending by another $34 billion next year uh, to a $750 billion billion budget baseline. That makes up a 5% boost to defense and military spending. To keep the defense budget within current caps, the White House uses a gimmick putting $164 billion of this budget increase in an uncapped overseas contingency. So that's just a fancy way of saying they're messing with the numbers to try to give even more to the military, which is already a grossly bloated budget. We spend more than the next 10 biggest countries combined on our military. Uh, And there's an $8.6 billion um, funding for the southern border wall. 
So he wants to pay for his border wall, about $9 billion. Separated between increased funding for the Department of Homeland Security and funding for military construction. And then overall, there's a 9% cut to non-defense programs, which would hit Section 8 housing vouchers, public housing programs, Head Start, um, the Women, Infants, and Children Nutrition Program, or WIC as it's called, and low-income home energy assistance, um, among others. And then let me give you a breakdown from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. This is the overall breakdown here. There's a 31% cut to the EPA, a 19% cut to the Department of Transportation, an 18% cut to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, Agri Department of Agriculture, 12% cut, Department of Health and Human Services, 12% cut, National Science Foundation, 12% cut, um, Department of Education, 12% cut. Department of Labor, 10% cut. Department of the Interior, 9% cut. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, 2% cut. And then the only increases are Department of Commerce, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Department of Homeland Security. So, um, in other words, let's have an even bigger, more bloated military. Let's build the wall, and then let's cut every single safety net program that we have in this country. Every single one. Guys, this document proves beyond any reasonable doubt all of that fake populist talk was BS. It was a gimmick to try to get elected. When he was on the campaign trail talking about workers and talking about helping people and we're not going to cut Social Security, we're not going to cut Medicare, we're not going to cut Medicaid, wrong. He did exactly that when he got power. So, and here's the argument that needs to be made. Donald Trump is George W. Bush. That's who he is. That's who he is. He's every single standard establishment Republican. He's Ted Cruz. That's who he is. He's Ted Cruz. He's Marco Rubio. He's Jeb Bush. All the never Trumpers should be ecstatic because he's doing all the things that they wanted him to do. The reason many of the never-Trumpers in the Republican Party didn't like him is because they thought, oh, he might end wars and he might, you know, actually help workers and not cut Medicare and Social Security. Well, Trump has done the opposite. He's expanded our wars. He is saying let's cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. He's not helping workers. He's screwing workers. 93,000 jobs were outsourced in his first year in office. Seven million people lost their health insurance. He ain't helping workers. This is clearly an elitist, neoconservative, deeply right-wing, anti-worker budget. There's no two ways about it. This is the establishment's wet dream. This is the right's wet dream. This is like any standard Republican president. So um, now you know. Now you know all the specifics. Now you know there's no two ways about it. The dude is a fraud. And this is what Bernie says all the time on the campaign show. He's a fraud. Oh, really? You're going to help workers? Why is everything you're doing the exact opposite of helping workers? Why are you help hurting the most vulnerable people in society and helping the military-industrial complex? Why are you doing that? Answer, because he's just as corrupted as the rest of the establishment politicians. He just talks a better game and makes some people think he's anti-establishment. Well, here you go. There's no way you could analyze this budget and say, oh, yeah, he's for regular people. My ass cheeks, he's for regular people.
All right, let's talk about what's happening in Iowa. So I have some pretty big election news here for everybody. The chairman of the Iowa Democratic Party resigned Wednesday after overseeing a botched presidential caucus that led to days of confusion, chaos, and anger as campaigns and voters waited for the final results. So his name is Troy Price, and in many ways, um, he's the fall guy here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's innocent. He's not. In fact, he had sketchy, sketchy connections to Mayor Pete and his team. And apparently what we learned last night is many of the other leaders in the Iowa Democratic Party were just as concerned as the most ardent online Bernie supporters about his connection to Mayor Pete. And what they said is some of the decisions that Troy and, you know, the people doing the vote count, the DNC, some of the decisions that they were making were indefensible and can only be seen through the prism of, oh, oh, are you trying to rig this thing? Again, people who are closer to the vote count, who are good people, are like, whoa, whoa, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I mean, one of the things, remember, there was one precinct that gave Deval Patrick 7% of their vote. And, oh, would you look at that? It came from Bernie Sanders. And what do they do? The Iowa Democratic Party goes, up, 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 all right, we're fixing it. Everybody shut up. We're fixing it. By the way, no explanation as to how that happened, what the mistake was, how can something like that happen? Nothing. Oh, we're fixing it. We're fixing it. Okay, so they fix it. Then we learn a couple days later, they go, oh, legally we can't fix any problems because these are legal documents that they wrote the stuff on, so we can't change it. But you did fix the freaking Deval Patrick one. So what are you talking about? It became very obvious, not just to your online Bernie bro, but to people involved in the process who are not corrupted. They were like, oh, oh. So they're trying to steal the election. That's what they're doing. These are indefensible decisions that they're making. These make, that makes no sense. So there had to be some sort of pressure coming against Troy. But I will say I do think ultimately, even though he's part of the problem, he is just the fall guy. Because it looks like this is supposed to be, like, everybody goes, oh, okay, they got rid of the bad apple. At some point, the DNC took over the vote count. The DNC, the same DNC that's packed with lobbyists and former Hillary people and the same people who were involved in screwing Bernie Sanders last time. It doesn't make me feel better that the DNC took it over. It might even make me feel worse. But I don't trust the Iowa Democratic Party or the DNC. I, like I said, I think Bernie should sue and it should go to a judge because I honestly, even a right-wing Republican judge, I would trust to be more objective with the vote count than I would the Iowa Democratic Party or the DNC. And what kind of a sad state of affairs is that? When you expect a, a more fair, accurate reading and reporting from a Republican judge than you do from Democrats. So, you know, he's just a fall guy. You should still be pissed. And if you think like, oh, now with him gone, we're going to get everything's going to be good and hunky-dory, no. Now, there are still outstanding mistakes, and Bernie's team and Pete's team requested certain uh, re-canvases, and maybe only about 5% of the precincts or something. But 
look at what's happening in the count now. So this is from the guy who's been following this inside and out. He deserves a lot of credit. His name on Twitter is at Taniel. And uh, he says this, the IDP count still likely lacks results of two precincts, but somehow it still says 100%. It has dozens of errors, at least one of which is not what math worksheets show. And yet, one, it's charging campaigns for a re-canvas, and two, that won't even cover all errors, including a likely missing precinct. So this is the guy who's been following this closely from day one, and what he says is, in no uncertain terms, they're trying to get a recount, which makes perfect sense, but the recount is not going to fix all the errors, and it's going to leave an entire precinct out? And even according to what the Iowa Democratic Party, the IDP, is saying, there are still errors that are not even tied to the math worksheets. So in other words, the argument they used of, oh, we can't fix it because these are legal documents, there are some errors that don't even fall into that category. They are errors that even by their own logic is fixable, and they're not fixing it. I'm going to say it. I'll say it because it's freaking obvious if you're following this stuff close enough. They're trying to steal this from Bernard Sanders. That's exactly what they're doing. If, if you, you know, cheat a little bit over here and a little bit over here and a little bit over here, you got it to the point where Bernie could still win the popular vote by 6,000 votes. That's the first alignment. On the second alignment, up by 2,000 still. And you could still make it so that Pete wins the state delegate elects? Please, son. That's about a 3.5% margin of victory. There were 180,000 people that caucus, and Bernie won by 6,000. That's a sizable victory. That's bigger than his victory in New Hampshire, and everybody agrees in New Hampshire Bernie won. So they're trying to steal it from Bernie Sanders. That's what they're doing. It's not a question. It's not up in the air. If you follow this stuff closely, you know the overwhelming majority of the mistakes went against Bernie. So that's what it is. But listen, we will correct the record. Bernie Sanders won Iowa, Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire, and we're moving forward, and we're going to keep winning. And they're going to keep trying to screw us, and we're going to keep showing up in bigger and bigger numbers. And like I said, we have to overwin in order to win. So you know what? Let's overwin. We're going to talk about Abby Martin now and what she's doing. So journalist Abby Martin was supposed to speak at a university in Georgia. And um, in order to do so, she had to agree to not support BDS. And these are the kinds of laws that are popping up all around the U.S., um, the idea is, in, in the case of Houston, remember when there was a big flood in Houston? Apparently, you had to sign a pledge to not boycott Israel to get relief funding from the flood. So there's been you know, a plethora of anti-BDS laws popping up in various states all around the country. And there's been at least two or three cases over these laws. And in all of the cases, the pro-free speech side has won. In other words, the state governments can't make you not boycott Israel. Uh, that is clearly a crackdown on your freedom of speech. So um, Abby came out and said the following. 
Today, I filed a major lawsuit against the state of Georgia to challenge their unconstitutional anti-BDS oath that blocked me from speaking. Please watch uh, the press conference and interviews with my lawyers uh, fighting to restore the First Amendment. Okay, so I'm not going to show you um, the press conference at the moment, but, you know, she's clearly telling us there that she's filed a major lawsuit, and she's done it with the help of, uh, of CARE. And shout out to uh, my buddy Imran Siddiqui. He, um, he helped uh, hook Abby up with these folks, and this is a very, very, very important lawsuit. And what I would say is, if you're somebody who cares about the issue of free speech and the First Amendment, as I do, everybody knows I refer to myself as a free speech absolutist, and that's a term that, you know, is like maligned from many, you know, corners of the political debate that we have today. But if you really believe in that, you should be all over this because not only is this about the principle of freedom of speech, which it is, in this case, it's also about the legality of it. It's also about the law. That's not something you see. A lot of the free speech discourse online doesn't even focus on actual First Amendment case law. This is literally First Amendment case law. That's what this is. So we're setting a precedent here. These lawsuits set a precedent um, where if Abby loses, if the free speech side loses, you've just opened a door that is beyond scary, honestly, because now the, gov their, the state governments can just crack down on whatever points of view they don't like. That's unacceptable. That's totally unacceptable, and that is the definition of authoritarian. So guess what? A couple days after Abby files this lawsuit, and it's a big story, Netanyahu tweets, and what does he say? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whoever boycotts us will be boycotted. The UN Human Rights Council is a biased body that is devoid of influence. Not for nothing, I have already ordered the severing of ties with it. It was also not for nothing that the American administration has taken steps with us. In recent years, we have promoted laws in most U.S. states which determine that strong action is to be taken against whoever tries to boycott Israel. Wow. He's admitting it. He's saying, hey, man, I'm talking to the government in the U.S. I'm talking to states around the U.S., and I am trying to get them to crack down on people who want to boycott Israel. So a foreign head of state is trying to take away the free speech rights of American citizens? No, 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 no. Why are you allowed to go out there? You could go out there and say, I want to boycott, I don't know, fill in the blank with something that, you know, the establishment likes. I want to boycott Cuba, Venezuela, whatever. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to come out there and say, I want to boycott Saudi Arabia. Everybody understands why you'd want to do that, but you can't say, I want to boycott Israel. When they're, look at how they're treating Palestinians. They're not interested in peace. Look at the expansion of illegal settlements. Look at the degradation in Gaza right now. And you're not allowed to say, hey, man, I don't like what's happening there, and I'm against Israel. I think we should boycott the illegal, illegal settlements. By the way, BDS is working in the occupied territories. There are a lot of businesses that left there. Why? Because they're like, my bottom line is being impacted because I'm being boycotted. So that's why there's this overreaction and this crackdown from the Israeli government, because they know, oh, my God, BDS is working. So they go to where our strength is.
Because what is BDS at its heart? It is, at its core, it is a nonviolent way to resist against a clear violation of international law. That's what it is. Hey, you're violating international law. You're stealing land that's not yours. You're screwing Palestinians. Okay, what can we do to stop it? Well, let's boycott businesses. Let's boycott, divest, and sanction, and try our best to force them out of the occupied territories. And let's try to force a peace deal to happen. No, what they do is they strawman you as an anti-Semite, like you're a bigot because you want to stop wanton violations of international law and illegal settlements. You're a bigot, and I want to take away your free speech rights in the process. If you care about freedom of speech, you have to get involved in this issue. It is the front line of the free speech battle today. So I wish uh, Abby Martin and Care all the luck in the world. Okay. All right, let's finish with some dunking on right-wingers. Now, I'm told by centrist Democrats and the media that Bernie Sanders shouldn't be the nominee, particularly because the right hasn't even gotten started on him yet. He hasn't been vetted. He hasn't been criticized by the right yet. And let me tell you something, man. Once they lash into Bernie, it's a wrap for Bernie, and he's going to crumble. And so, therefore, we need somebody who's been vetted, somebody who's stronger. I mean, these are the arguments that they make. So here we have a right-wing commentator by the name of Mark Levin, um, colossally annoying, really dumb. um, And he's giving us a taste here of what we have to look forward to if there is a Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump election. Let's see those strong arguments that, you know, now the right is starting to vet Bernie, and it is devastating. So all he's about are radical, statist, Marxist ideas. This man has never gotten dirt under his fingernails. This man has never lied down under a car to look at the bottom of the car to change the oil. This man, to the best of my knowledge, never changed a tire. I know he's never done an operation. I know he's never taken blood. I don't know how he can run hospitals. He doesn't know enough about hospitals, but he knows everything. He says he knows everything. And it should tell you something also. This is a man born in Brooklyn, New York. Where does he wind up? In Vermont. He talks about the society being racist from the top to the bottom, racist throughout. Why did he choose Vermont? Why does he live in Vermont? Why didn't he choose another place? Why didn't he choose a town like Newark or Camden or East Palo Alto or East St. Louis? Why didn't he pick any of these really tough majority-minority towns? Why didn't he pick them? Because he's racist from top to bottom. That's why. I like how he does, like, the equivalent of uh, spiking the football in the end zone. Like, he thinks he nailed it, and he, like, takes his glasses off. Like, you know what, bro? Yeah, I think he's racist. I think he's racist. He does this weird thing that's like, got him. <laughs> got him, bro. Oh, Bernie, I got you, bro. The funniest thing about this is one of the arguments that comes all the time from the far right is like, oh, 
you know, these lefties, all they do is talk about race. It's the only thing they have is they just wantonly accuse people of racism and like, hey, let me tell you something, man. Just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean they're by definition a racist, okay? All you guys do is see through the lens of identity. And Mark Levin does exactly that. Well, Bernie Sanders, his nasally-ass voice is sort of like Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders moved to Vermont because he's a racist. <laughs> really? So if you move to Vermont, you are by definition racist. That seems like you're doing the exact thing you accuse the left of doing. Uh, I don't know, but I'll fill in the blank and just accuse you of bigotry. Wow, Mark, really deep. <laughs> this is all they got, man. They got nothing. They got nothing. They got nothing. Uh, I will give him credit for being original, at least, because, you know, what are we used to hearing all the time when it comes to... So that's 90% of the time from idiots on the right you get. But you like Bernie, bro? What about Venezuela? <laughs> As if we're going to be like, oh, fuck, man. Dog, I never thought of that. You're right. They're not doing well over there. I forgot. Remember when Bernie proposed the let's do everything Maduro did act? <laughs> and by the way, I'm not trying to downplay the impact of U.S. sanctions because that also screwed Venezuela. But what they try to do is take whatever Bernie says, every, every flavor and variety of leftism is the same to these simpletons and these smear merchants. So they will try to take somebody who's a mild social democrat in the mold of FDR and turn him into an authoritarian communist. So, just so everybody knows, that is the most obvious straw man in the world. In the same way that there's a difference on the right between somebody who's a libertarian, somebody who's a paleoconservative, versus somebody who's a neoconservative, or somebody who's a fascist. For some reason, all these clowns understand, what, what are you, you can't just accuse everybody on the right of being a fascist. There's you know, different kinds of right-wing beliefs. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you can't call somebody who's a libertarian. They're, they're not a fascist. And if you say that they are, you're just being sloppy in your thinking or you're smearing them. By the same token, there's a difference between libertarian leftist philosophies. There's statist versions of leftism. There's anti-statist versions of leftism. There's, you know, market socialism. There's, there are all kinds of ideologies on the left. And Bernie is just a standard Scandinavian model social democrat carrying out FDR's New Deal legacy. And they have nothing. So, you know, this is, this is where we're at. He says, oh, he's a radical statist Marxist. And, uh, of course, he has to go from there to, Bernie doesn't know how to draw blood or run the hospital. Right, Mark, because that's the idea. The idea is with Medicare for All, Bernie Sanders is himself physically there taking the blood and uh, performing the surgeries. Do you not, like, do you, when you go to bed at night, do you think, like, man, I'm a giant fraud? Because you should think that. Because, <laughs> again, you're not even trying to be fair to people who disagree with you. If you want to say, hey, here's what Bernie actually believes, and let me tell you why I disagree, but I will accurately categorize his beliefs, that's fine, man. That's the free marketplace of ideas and open discussion, and that's all fun. But when you start saying, no, he, he's a 
radical statist Marxist, and he wants to run the hospitals personally, and he thinks he knows everything. No, he doesn't. You know who's the smuggest motherfucker on the planet who really acts like they know everything? You. You are. I've listened to your show before. It's the dumbest thing I've ever fucking heard in my life, okay? But but when you have to go to that extent, there's such a lack of actual criticism that you end up going to, he's a racist because he lives in Vermont. Then I have no words for you. And I have nothing but mockery and scorn for you. Because again, what you're doing is you're demonstrating that that's all you're worthy of, okay? That's all, I know... You know, you think you're a genius, and you think you're entertaining, but really you're a smug motherfucker who just strawmans everybody you disagree with massively. And there is no substance there. There's no there there. But ultimately, I want to thank you, because it's people like you that will make a Bernie versus Trump race easier. Because guess what? All Any advice that Mark Levin would give Donald Trump, if Trump takes that advice in running against Bernie Sanders, then Bernie wins. It's funny, because Trump has way better instincts than all of these idiots on the right. Ted Cruz, Mark Levin, Rush Limbaugh, you name them. Maybe the only people who are close to Trump in terms of instincts would be Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon. Now, I disagree with them massively on a variety of issues, of course. But they're smart enough to know certain lanes that they can't take. Mark Levin does not know that. So uh, he'll just be like, the Marxist, racist, I like how I made him Ted Cruz now with the me. But uh, there you have it, guys. This is, the, this is the vetting that we've been warned about. This is the right-wing attacks against Bernie that we've been warned about. Namely, total hyperbolic bullshit that'll probably help him. Okay, next. Final, final story of the Dizay, y'all. So Ted Cruz, me, I'm Ted Cruz, me. He took a shot at, uh, at Bernie on his new podcast. Yes, Ted Cruz has a podcast. He was bragging, by the way, that it, like, surpassed Joe Rogan. Uh, let me tell you something, son. Come back in 10 years and talk to me. Let's see how your numbers are versus Joe. I mean, maybe with the first episode, you know, you made all the phone calls to all your little idiot buddies in right-wing media, and they all pumped it out, and people were curious, and so they listened to it for five minutes or whatever. I'm sure there's some logical explanation as to how you beat Joe Rogan on one day, Um, but you're talking about somebody who's been leading in the podcast world for like 10 years, so... Here's what you're not going to do. Consistently beat that guy. So, uh, but these are the kinds of conversations that he has on his show. He's talking to a guy by the name of Michael Knowles, or as he's known uh, on the internet, the Daily Wire third stringer. That is such an appropriate name for him because that's what he is. He's the Daily Wire third stringer. He's the guy they bring out at the last minute. Like, hey, get the guy with the faked voice who has no original thoughts. Let him, <laughs> let him be involved in this. So here's the conversation that they had. This is, this is like, I feel like I need a shower after watching this because it's one incredibly fake person talking to another incredibly fake person with their fake voices on and their fake personas. And look at what they end up saying. I wouldn't put it past them to have electronic voting, to have, number one, a holiday, a mandated federal holiday on Election Day. 
and electronic voting, because, you know, we've we seen how well that worked in Iowa. Uh, <laughs> so you, you know, they'll, they'll have the same guy, Robbie Luke, um, what a name, um, worked for uh, Mrs. Clinton. Uh, he, was, he was Hillary Clinton, I guess, her campaign manager, and he was behind that app that completely botched the Iowa caucus. So, so it said we'll just have the entire elections run through an app, but don't worry, if, if it's not Democratic operatives running the app, it, it'll be big tech. Because we can trust big tech to be in charge. <laughs> they of our would elections. never censor conservatives, have a political bias, and as bad as they are now, yeah. In a democratic, in a Bernie Sanders administration, they would. I am not exaggerating when I say this podcast could very well be off the air. They can't help themselves, man. They can't help themselves. Bernie Sanders is such a strong believer in free speech and the First Amendment that he came out and said, remember when there was a riot over Ann Coulter speaking somewhere? It might have been in Berkeley. Um, Bernie Sanders came out and said, you have to let her speak because we believe in free speech in this country. I disagree with her on everything. I think she's loathsome. I think she's absurd. But you have to let her speak. That's the way this country works, and we believe in free speech. That's who Bernie Sanders is. Ted Cruz goes out there and says, Bernie's, if Bernie's elected, he's going to take your podcast off the air. They have nothing on this guy. It's so hyperbolic. It's so stupid. By the way, he goes on to say, if Bernie's elected, he's definitely going to break up big tech. So wait, which is it? You were just saying that Bernie Sanders is like, you know, in bed with big tech, and he's going to work with them to censor conservatives. That's what you were saying there. And then you go on to say the opposite. He's so anti-big tech that he will break up big tech. Which is it? Is he anti-big tech or is he pro-big tech and in cahoots with them? They, don't, they got nothing. They got nothing. Who watches that and doesn't realize the contradictions or doesn't see how fake they are? Even the way they're talking, they have on that fake Mr. You know, Mr. Reporter guy voice. This is how I talk, I promise, on a regular day. When I wake up in the morning, I talk like this. That's the third stringer. And Ted Cruz is doing his normal Ted Cruz voice. Um, now, I like how they started the clip, too, by making fun of the idea of a federal voting holiday. Wait, why is that a bad thing? All that would do is make it so that turnout is higher. Why do you not like that? It's almost like you don't want turnout to be higher, because it's almost like when turnout is higher, it helps the left and it hurts the right. Oh, that's exactly what it is. They're not even hiding this shit, man. Now, the only thing I do agree with them on is the app thing. I don't want any apps. I don't want Robbie Mook involved. I don't want any of that. Um... Let's have elections with paper ballots, have a paper trail. I don't even trust any voting machine counter that's a private company. <clears throat> wrong. Done. Out of here. Not interested by any stretch of the imagination. So that I agree with. Um, but this is who Ted Cruz is. He's silly. He's hyperbolic. He's ridiculous. He's absurd. He can't disagree with Bernie Sanders on the merits. Um, and the idea that even big tech, oh, they censor conservatives. Uh, we just covered a story on this show, and I've spoken about, I've talked about similar stories before. You had the CNN parody, CMN, or CNM, I forget which way it goes, but a friend of mine runs it, and that was pulled. Now, that's not a CNN parody from the right, they're criticizing CNN from the left. There was an MSNBC parody called MSDNC. Not criticizing MSNBC from the right, criticizing them from the left. They got pulled. They got pulled. 
you know how many like good uh, Twitter accounts and how many YouTube channels and whatnot were pulled that were on the left? A lot of them. There, that happened quite a bit. And in fact, at the height of Russiagate, we, we were put on lists and shit. Like, oh, maybe they're funded by Russia. Maybe these should be pulled down. Maybe they, they accuse you of being a Russian bot or something and they pull it down. And again, these are not, it's not against the right. These are against anti-establishment left-wing outlets. So the real breakdown is not left versus right. It's establishment versus anti-establishment. But Ted Cruz, you know, pretends that's not the case and acts like it's only the right being censored. And this is why he's a hack. And by the way, he is part and parcel of the establishment. He's accusing Bernie Sanders, oh, he's going to pull me off the air because he doesn't believe in free speech. Ted Cruz is a guy who has argued in public repeatedly that the First Amendment means complete unfettered corruption. And corporations and billionaires can give as much money as they want to the politicians. And that's totally fine because that's the First Amendment. And he accuses Democrats who want to get money out of politics. Oh, you hate free speech. This is the kind of guy we're talking about here. This guy's a clown, man. So, And I know I don't have to tell you guys because you guys know all this, but many people out there don't know this. So I hope that this changes some people's minds away from thinking Ted Cruz is like, you know, some sort of genius or some sort of truth teller. He's a lying hack. That's what he is. Okay, we are done, so baby, baby. All right, I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.